Welcome to A Great Big City News, episode 46. Today, the Guggenheim opens and the busway is buzzing. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash support to learn how to support New York City local news and allow us to keep bringing you this podcast. If you are a New York-based business and would be interested in sponsoring our podcast, visit agreatbigcity.com slash advertising to learn more. Hi, I'm Trace Gilton, founder of A Great Big City. We've been following the 14th Street Busway since it was first proposed, and after being blocked twice by legal complaints, the street has finally been swept free of cars, and the buses have been roaming free for two weeks now. In a press release from the MTA, preliminary data shows that ridership is up and buses are moving faster along 14th Street. A cross-town trip from 3rd Avenue to 8th Avenue will now take 10.6 minutes compared to a 15-minute trip from last year. While they were collecting data on the select bus service plan implemented along the M14 route, the MTA saw a jump in ridership, with 15% more people choosing to take prioritized buses. And in the short time since the 14th Street busway has been operating, ridership has jumped again, now topping 31,000 daily riders on an average weekday. The busway, which limits traffic on 14th Street from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., is planned to last 18 months after which the DOT will assess the impact it had on bus transit and traffic in the surrounding area. Also this week, independent data analysis firm Enrix evaluated traffic data from the streets surrounding the 14th Street busway and found that there was no change in traffic speeds and zero impact on traffic to the immediate north and south of 14th Street. The initial objections raised by local community groups claimed that the busway would negatively impact nearby streets by pushing 14th Street's traffic into their neighborhoods. But the speed increase for 31,000 daily bus riders came at zero expense to traffic, with average speed differences on surrounding streets never slowing more than a half a mile an hour. Here's how Enrix described the results. Quote, The impact, or lack thereof, may seem surprising, but similar projects around the world have had similar results. The reallocation of space from vehicles to buses represents a far more efficient use of a limited public resource, whereas one urban lane in congestion can move roughly 1,000 people an hour, a transit way can hit 25,000. As a result of this project, more people are getting where they need to be faster and more reliably. Unquote. Fifty-three years ago, on October 17, 1966, 12 members of the FDNY are killed when a burning building collapses, becoming the largest single loss of life in FDNY history until the September 11th attacks. The fire, just north of Union Square, was fueled by flammable paint supplies stored in an art dealer's cellar that had been expanded from 7 East 22nd Street to partially under 6 East 23rd Street and wooden support beams in the cellar were badly burned by the flames, causing the first floor to collapse, taking the firefighters along with it. The fire took 16 hours to bring under control and damaged the building so extensively that they needed to be torn down. Today, a large apartment building wraps around the corner and takes up the spaces where both buildings previously stood. You can see a series of photos of the fire and the collapse via the FDNY on the history page on our website. Another incident near Union Square from this week in history. Eighteen years ago, on October 24, 2001, 
A 14-story construction scaffolding and a brick building facade collapses, killing five workers and seriously injuring 10 others in a courtyard at 215 Park Avenue South near Union Square. The collapse occurred a month and a half after the September 11th attacks and caused building tenants to fear the collapse was another terror attack. Rescue workers were pulled from ground zero to assist in digging through the three-story pile of rubble to locate anyone trapped below. The contractor in charge of the site would go on to plead guilty to second-degree reckless manslaughter and admit that he had not done calculations on how much weight the scaffolding could safely hold and had designed the structure himself instead of having it certified by an engineer or an architect. 54 years ago on October 18, 1965, closing day of the New York World's Fair at Flushing Meadows Park. The fair had run from April to October in both 1964 and 1965, showcasing modern technology and speculations about future innovations. Flushing Meadows Corona Park had been created to host the 1939-1940 World's Fair and still holds many structures built for the fairs, most famously the 140-foot-high stainless steel unisphere, which has become an iconic symbol of both Flushing and Queens itself. The Parks Department offers free, guided, World's Fair history walking tours once a month. Whenever I mention the World's Fair, I always make sure to recommend the Bowery Boys podcast, where Greg Young and Tom Myers have done a fantastic job of digging into the history of both New York World's Fairs, even piecing together a description of what it might have been like to walk through the fair at the time and some of the attractions you could have seen. Visit the link in the show notes to see all the Bowery Boys World's Fair episodes or just search for Bowery Boys in your podcast player. 24 years ago, on October 23, 1995, a Greenpeace activist piloting a, quote, gas-powered parachute flies a banner outside the UN building. The flight was to protest France's recent nuclear testing in the South Pacific. While French President Jacques Chirac spoke inside the UN building, Kai Britt, a 33-year-old from Germany, flew the parachute with a banner trailing behind that said, Stop Nuclear Testing. Chirac's recent reintroduction of nuclear testing had become a sticking point in his presidency, both in France and from abroad. Kai Britt evaded police helicopters for 20 minutes before he was forced to land on Roosevelt Island and was apprehended and charged with disorderly conduct, reckless endangerment, obstructing governmental administration, and unlawfully flying over the water. France would conduct a few nuclear tests after the UN meeting, but would announce an end to their nuclear testing in January 1996, three months after Kai Britt's parachute protest. It seems as if Kai Britt has remained with Greenpeace over the years, as his name still appeared in a 2012 article about the Costa Concordia shipwreck, where he is credited as a Greenpeace expert, and in Spiegel Online from 2012, where he is quoted as an employee for the German branch of Greenpeace. Eighty-eight years ago, on October 24, 1931, the upper level of the George Washington Bridge is opened in a dedication ceremony and opens to traffic the next day. The ceremony included an air show by military airplanes and speeches from New Jersey Governor Morgan Foster Larson and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was governor of New York at the time. Before opening to traffic, pedestrians were allowed to walk across the roadway, and on opening day, 55,523 vehicles, 
33,540 pedestrians and one man on a horse crossed the bridge, paying 25 cents per vehicle and 10 cents per pedestrian, equivalent to about $4 and $1.70 today. During the first year, 5.5 million vehicles used the bridge to travel between New York and New Jersey. The bridge would hold the title for the world's longest suspension bridge until the opening of the Golden Gate Bridge in 1937, which was 700 feet longer. Unlike many infrastructure projects, the bridge was actually completed eight months early and under budget. Here's the United States Marine Band, conducted by Leonard Slatkin, playing William Schumann's 1950 composition, George Washington Bridge, where Schumann set to music his feelings of crossing the bridge and observing it throughout the day. The bridge is named after the nation's first president, George Washington, in remembrance of his crossing of the Hudson River at the point between Fort Lee and Washington Heights. Although 1931 marked the opening day of the bridge, extra capacity was added over the years, with two additional center lanes added in 1946 and the lower level added in 1962. As of 2018, the bridge carried an average of 10 million vehicle crossings per month and is the busiest motor vehicle bridge in the world. If you drive across the bridge on a select number of national holidays, you may get to see the largest free-flying flag in the world, a 60-foot by 90-foot American flag which is suspended over the roadway at the Western Tower when weather and winds allow. Sixty years ago, on October 21, 1959, the Guggenheim Museum opens on the Upper East Side. Solomon R. Guggenheim, born into a wealthy mining family, had been collecting artwork since the 1890s, and had held exhibitions in his private apartment at the Plaza Hotel before founding the Museum of Non-Objective Painting in 1939 in a former car showroom at 24 East 54th Street. The non-objective part of the museum's title refers to what we typically call abstract art today, where artists express themselves using visual language without attempting to represent physical objects. Guggenheim's museum would move to its current location along Central Park in 1959 into a building that Robert Moses described as an inverted oatmeal dish. Although constructed on a limited budget and met with criticism of its architecture, the Frank Lloyd Wright-designed building would take its place along Fifth Avenue and become a symbol of New York City's art scene. The museum is one of the city's most visited attractions, with just over one million visitors annually. After 16 years of planning and construction, the building opened after both Guggenheim's and Wright's deaths, in 1949 and 1959 respectively. It was only after Solomon Guggenheim's death that the Museum of Non-Objective Painting was renamed in 1952 in honor of its founder and the collection of art he had spent his life acquiring. The museum's curved exterior of form cement has become iconic, but Frank Lloyd Wright originally proposed that the building would be colored red instead of bright white. While the building was meticulously planned by Frank Lloyd Wright to utilize light from above, the original skylight at the top of the spiral building had been covered over and had to be replaced in 1991 with new thermal glass that filters out harmful UV and infrared light 
that could be damaging to the artwork. The museum's extensive three-year, $24 million renovation in the 1990s also involved constructing a tower near the museum to add gallery space, office space, and storage capacity. Similar to a 10-story tower that Frank Lloyd Wright had initially planned for the site, but had been scrapped from the final plan due to financial reasons. It looks like there are two events planned this year for the museum's 60th anniversary on Monday, October 21st, with a jazz celebration in the main rotunda from noon to 2 p.m. and a members-only party from 6.30 to 9 p.m. The Guggenheim may be celebrating its 60th anniversary, but another arts institution is tracing its history back to 136 years ago, on October 22, 1883, when the original Metropolitan Opera House opened. On opening night, the Opera House debuted with a performance of Faust, and over the history of the Met, Faust had been performed more than 700 times. The building on Broadway between 39th and 40th, now known as the Old Met, was renowned for its excellent acoustics, but the backstage area was far too small and would make storage of sets difficult during the entire 83 years that the Met was located on Broadway. A final farewell performance was given at the Old Met on April 16, 1966, after which the opera moved to their new building on the Upper West Side at Lincoln Center. Like many of the city's historic sites in the 1960s, the building failed to receive landmark status and was torn down in 1967 and replaced by a 40-story office tower at 1411 Broadway. Beginning October 18th through the 20th, you'll have the once-a-year opportunity to explore the city like you've never seen it before when Open House New York brings you exclusive tours of the city's architectural masterpieces that are sometimes hidden from the public view or passed by unnoticed for the rest of the year. Visit ohny.org for the full schedule of events, some of which require advance registration, but most of which are open all day to the public. Choices range from brand new developments like 277 Mott Street to historic homes like the Alice Austin House built on Staten Island in the 1690s. Going beyond architecture, you can also tour special projects like a solar rooftop in Harlem and an urban farm run by Brooklyn Grange in Long Island City. Each site sets its own visitation hours, so visit ohny.org to plan out your weekend. And if you're planning on marching in the Village Halloween Parade, you better be finishing up your costume soon. Halloween is less than two weeks away, and the city's biggest party will be stepping off on Thursday, October 31st at 7 p.m. at 6th Avenue and Canal Street. The parade is unique because it lets anyone participate. If you wear a costume centered around this year's theme of Wild Thing, you'll be allowed to march in a special section of the parade, but anyone who shows up in a costume will become part of the parade, and usually more than 50,000 people show up in the village on Halloween night. Visit Halloween-NYC.com for full info. And if you haven't decided on a costume yet, visit the AGBC Costume Ideas Generator at agreatbigcity.com slash Halloween-Costumes, where you can get funny New York-themed ideas for costumes, like dressing up as a vintage traffic jam now that the 14th Street busway is open, or strike fear in the heart of anyone who has walked the city streets by becoming the 
Starbucks Bathroom of Doom. A great big city has been running a 24-hour news feed since 2010, but the AGBC News Podcast is just getting started and we need your support. A great big city is built on a dedication to explaining what's happening and how it fits into the larger history of New York, which means thoroughly researching every topic and avoiding clickbait headlines to provide a straightforward, honest, and factual explanation of the news. Individuals can make a monthly or one-time contribution at agreatbigcity.com support, and local businesses can have a lasting impact by supporting local news while promoting products or services directly to interested customers listening to the podcast. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash advertising to learn more. A Great Big City is more than just a news website. Every evening, just before sundown, A Great Big City checks the Empire State Building's lighting schedule and sends out a notification if the tower's lights will be lit in special colors for a holiday or a celebration. Follow A Great Big City on social media to receive the alerts. Park of the Day, Crotona Park in the Bronx. For more than 100 years, Crotona Park has been one of the most important public parks in the Bronx. A sanctuary of rolling grass, lofty trees, baseball diamonds, a pool, and a peaceful lake. Although the city planned to name the park for the Bathgates, a dispute with the family led the Parks Department to name it after Croton, an ancient Greek colony famed for its Olympic athletes. Other projects in Crotona Park, completed during the tenure of Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, included the construction or renovation of five baseball diamonds, 20 tennis courts, 26 handball courts, nine playgrounds, four comfort stations, and picnic and seating areas. Coming up in Parks events, on Saturday, October 9th, is the 10th Annual Harvest Festival in Brooklyn Bridge Park. Beginning at 11 a.m., the park will turn into a pumpkin patch with arts and crafts, face painting, live music, games, and more. There will be a kickoff parade at 11 a.m., a brass band, a barn dance, drag queen story hour, and a performance from Conjunto Guantanamo playing authentic traditional Cuban music. The event is free and everything takes place at Pier 6 in Brooklyn Bridge Park beginning at 11 a.m. on Saturday, October 19th. Visit brooklynbridgepark.org for more information. And now let's see what our robot friend is scared up for this week on the concert calendar. Here's the AGBC concert calendar for the upcoming week. Lower Dens, Mets, Mogwai, and Parquet Courts are playing the Knockdown Center on Saturday, October 19th. The Misfits, Rancid, and The Damned are playing Madison Square Garden on Saturday, October 19th. Steely Dan is playing Beacon Theater on the Upper West Side on Saturday, October 19th at 8pm. Pernus Brothers and Joe Pernus are playing Mercury Lounge on Sunday, October 20th. 85 South is playing Apollo Theater in Central Harlem on Sunday, October 20th at 5 p.m. Cursive is playing St. Vitus Bar on Monday, October 21st. Charlie XTX is playing Terminal 5 on Monday, October 21st at 8 p.m. The Aqua Dolls and Thick are playing Babies All Right on Tuesday, October 22nd. Beach Slang is playing St. Vitus Bar on Tuesday, October 22nd. Japanese Breakfast is playing the Live Nation Lobby Lounge on Tuesday, October 22nd. The Body, 
Alexander Barden, Dream Crusher, and Uniform are playing the Kingsland on Tuesday, October 22. Witch and Habibi are playing the Bell House on Tuesday, October 22. Dermot Kennedy and Hollis are playing King's Theatre on Tuesday, October 22 at 8 p.m. Cigarettes After Sex is playing Webster Hall on Wednesday, October 23. Shura and Hannah Cohen are playing Music Hall of Williamsburg on Wednesday, October 23. Jesse Reyes is playing Brooklyn Steel and Greenpoint on Wednesday, October 23 at 8 p.m. And City and Color and Ruby Waters are playing Webster Hall on Thursday, October 24. Thanks for listening. Find more fun things to do at agreatbigcity.com slash events. Here's something you may not have known about New York. In 2016, the MTA had 5,710 buses in its citywide fleet. Extreme highs and lows for this week in weather history. A record high of 88 degrees in 1979 and a record low of 30 degrees in 1940. Weather for the week ahead. Light rain on Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, with highs only reaching into the 60s through the week. Thanks for listening to A Great Big City. Follow along 24 hours a day on social media at A Great Big City, or email contact at agreatbigcity.com with any news, feedback, or topic suggestions. Subscribe to A Great Big City News wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Player FM, or listen to each episode on the podcast pages at agreatbigcity.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening and visit our podcast site to see show notes and extra links for each episode. Our intro and outro music is Start the Day by Lee Rosphere, and the concert calendar music is from jukedeck.com. Thanks for being part of a great big city. <laughs>